0: Hey everyone, welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf Podcast. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. I love live performances. Even before I was interested in Korean music, I love to see live theater, Broadway shows, ballet, opera, pop, and rock concerts. Experiencing art with others is, to me, a transformative and exhilarating experience. Just like when you try to take a picture of something incredibly beautiful, but the real beauty doesn't come through on the actual picture, there is something about live performance that can be approximated, but can't actually be replicated outside of being there live. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is K-pop Live, Fans, Idols, and Multimedia Performance by Sook Kim. Content warning that I will be making references to stalking, blood, and anxiety in this episode. Professor Kim is a professor and the head of theater and performance studies at UCLA here in the United States. She published this book in 2018 and is an expert in K-pop. She's been interviewed for other media outlets as a K-pop expert. She was also a panelist at KCON. And if you don't know what KCON is, it's a huge K-pop convention and we'll talk about it more later in this episode. She's attended a lot of K-pop events such as concerts, conventions, exhibits. She's interviewed people in the industry and spent time with fans both online and in person. Just a quick note here that because this book was published in 2018, artists who debuted or rose to prominence after that year are not really mentioned as much. And the statistics and facts she mentions were current as of the time that she wrote the book. So if you're wondering why specific artists' achievements aren't mentioned, it's because those achievements hadn't occurred at the time that the book was written. Before we delve into this book more, I want to address one concept that Professor Kim mentions frequently throughout the book. And this concept is called heng. And so sorry if my pronunciation is incorrect, but the romanization is h-e-u-n-g. So if you look up heng, it's just defined as fun, basically. But according to Professor Kim, the meaning is so much more than that. But it doesn't have a direct translation in English. Professor Kim describes it in this way, quote, can be roughly translated as spontaneous energy stemming from excitation, inspiration, play, and frolicking, end quote. Basically, it's the feeling one gets when they're really caught up in a performance or when they're really excited about seeing their idol in person or being in close quarters with them. That feeling is hung, if, if I'm understanding this correctly. It's just this feeling of excitement, exuberance, and joy. Professor Kim goes into a little bit the history of both Korea and the history of K-pop. One thing I found interesting was the reason why K-pop took off even within Korea when it did and the way it did. K-pop became very popular at the turn of the millennium, so in other words, the late 90s and early 2000s. As we've discussed in other episodes of this Hallyu season, this was a time when physical CD sales were down and online piracy, meaning online illegal downloading of music without paying for it, was extremely popular. Professor Kim says this was a time where tours, either in Korea or overseas, was, quote, almost non-existent, end quote. For this reason, Korean music companies had to try and reach global music markets with K-pop, which they started to do not with live tours, but with things like music videos and later YouTube. If you're a fan of K-pop, you already know that the visual aspects of K-pop are almost as important, or maybe even equally important, to the music itself. Professor Kim writes, quote, The paradigm shift in music consumption also brought about a change in understanding K-pop not just as a sonic genre, but as a multimedia performance with a heavy emphasis on visuals, end quote. This is why a lot of K-pop idols today have to be competent in multiple aspects of entertainment, not just singing and dancing, but sometimes also acting and being good on variety shows. This is also why there's such a big emphasis on visual aspects of K-pop. Another thing she mentions is the different economic and political times that people who were young in the 90s and early 2000s were living in. In my Hollywood Korean cinema episode, we talked about the 386 generation, which a lot of film directors were a part of. This generation, if you recall, were college-aged during the time of the pro-democracy protests in the 1980s. So a lot of people were politically minded and worried about their country, their leadership, and their rights. The generation that came after them, those who came of age in the early to late 90s, so late Gen X, early millennials, to put it in American terms they were not dealing with all that kind of upheaval. They were dealing with kind of more politically stable times, especially after the IMF bailout. Professor Kim writes, quote, the generation of people who enjoyed K-pop were the generation after the 386 generation, the first generation to not experience all those historical hardships directly, end quote. She also says, quote, if they, K-pop bands happen to be Koreans, they are also capable of wiping the slate clean to move on from their parents and grandparents whose lives were directly affected by the turbulent forces of war, division, the democracy movement, and economic upheavals. For most fans, K-pop is not all about political or historical burdens. It is about here and now, and the creation of unprecedented connections with the rest of the world." Also, if you listened to my episode about gaming, you know that tech played a part in the Hallyu wave, since the Korean government heavily invested in internet access for its citizens. And this book also talks about how wired Korea was for its time and how tech played a part in the spreading of Korean culture, a.k.a. Hallyu, during that time. So one thing to note in this book about live performances is that according to Professor Kim, it's widely accepted that the Hallyu wave really kicked off when H.O.T. had a Beijing concert in the year 2000. An article from the Korea Time notes, quote, H.O.T.'s solo concert held in Beijing in 2000 was the point when the term Korean wave started to be used conventionally. An audience of approximately 12,000, with Chinese teenagers accounting for about 90%, attended the show. In the early 2000s, a subculture fandom in which groups of fans obsess over their idols was formed, end quote. So it was a live performance that really got the term Hallyu going in the media. So again, the title of this book is K-Pop Live. And so the focus of the book is therefore live performance. At the time of the book being written, groups like EXO were performing to large audiences in the U.S., one thing Professor Kim quotes in the book is, quote, Big Bang's made tour in 2015 and 16, ranked as one of the top 10 grossing tours in the United States in 2015. During the first half of 2016, Big Bang became the band to attract the most live concert attendees in Japan, the second largest music market in the world, end quote. But aside from just plain statistics about the growing emergence of live concerts in K-pop, the book also talks about the use of tech in creating a live or quasi-live experience. Professor Kim writes, quote, in this heavily mediatized environment, the question of what is live becomes a question of how we live our lives as increasingly mediated subjects, fragmented and isolated by technological wonders, while also yearning for a sense of belonging and aliveness through an interactive mode of exchange that we often call live, end quote. She wrote this before the pandemic, but I found this analysis to be very interesting in the time of the pandemic, where fans have been increasingly connecting with idols through online concerts and video chats. We have also seen a rise in platforms such as Bubble and Weverse, where you can get posts and messages directly from artists. These types of interaction are also a type of idols being or performing live. In her analysis of the EXO concert she attended in 2016, Professor Kim documents the event almost like an anthropologist. She writes about both the good and bad aspects of her experience, and I find her descriptions of live events to be really cool. So I'm going to read this one passage to you. Quote, I had eagerly anticipated the exo live concert, but as it progressed, my sense of the immediacy of being there gradually turned into frustration. I had to squint in order to discern through the dense crowd, the minuscule bodies of eight performers on stage, all of whom appeared no larger than Tinkerbell from the Logue. That's what they call those upper level box seating areas in theaters, by the way, where I was seated. My frustration stemmed not only from a middle aged person's declining vision, but also from the betrayed promise of a live event that was supposed to guarantee the experience of intimacy and co presence. End quote. I just found it really funny because I often see things in K pop Twitter where they talk about, oh, there's not a single bad seat in the house if you go to a so and so concert, or it's you're just lucky to be breathing the air as your fave or, or whatever it is. And I think that is true, but there's also like this very real sense of physical a toll from like standing for a long time or standing in a line for a long time or just waiting and you're bored and your anticipation grows into impatience and then maybe you get there and you're like, oh, I can't really see them and this is not exactly as like awesome as I hoped. It's just funny because I feel like I can see both sides of it. Fans who insist that there's not a single bad seat in the house no matter what and then her frustration with being like, wait, they are so tiny, I can't even see them. She later goes on to talk about the large screens around the stage behind the performers, what is often referred to as VCRs. For those of you who don't know, to give the performers a chance to change, a minute to rest, and get ready for the next performance, K-pop concerts typically have these moments where they show these pre-recorded videos so the audience has something to watch while the performers are backstage. These can sometimes be like comical skits or maybe a semi-music video of a song that they aren't going to actually perform live at this particular concert, but is on their current album. Along with VCRs, you often have a ment which is like when they talk to you and they address the audience and they try to interact a little bit with some of the people who are there, or they might play games and it's just like a break for them to not have to be like dancing information and singing. Uh, It gives other members a chance to change or get ready if there's going to be like a solo stage or a unit stage, or someone's going to come and perform a cover or just do like a dance number. It gives people time to rotate on and off stage. If you follow me on Instagram, I posted a clip from the very beginning of a show I attended for BTS's Love Yourself Tour back in 2018. It was before the group was on stage. They showed a VCR on these huge screens and also had pyrotechnics going to get a super hype for the concert. It included a montage of them performing spliced together with close-ups of individual members in their stage outfits. Those were pre-recorded. At the end of the video, the real-life BTS members popped up from a trap door in the stage. It was super exciting, and the crowd was going wild. With regards to those giant video screens, which were also used for the EXO concert, and like I said, is common for K-pop shows in general, Professor Kim said, quote, "...magnified faces of the stars started to appear on the screen as if to compensate for the spectorial limitations of audience members seated far away from the stage." One by one, each member of the band directed his amorous gaze at the camera, looking directly into the eyes of the viewers whose point of view had become entirely conflated with that of the person behind the camera, end quote. You can see that in my Instagram video as well, where you see the members of BTS wearing their stage costumes, the details of which are kind of hard to see if you're at a distance, and they're looking directly into the camera and they're looking right into your soul. It's kind of like what it feels like when you're there. Professor Kim wrote... This is, quote, quite illustrative of how vision and the intimate feelings of live interaction with others are produced in today's YouTube videos, end quote. I think we also get those intimate feelings of live interaction when idols go on Instagram Live or YouTube Live or V Live and conduct those video fan calls, right? Professor Kim writes, quote, I see K-pop as one of those powerful transmitters of complex sensory entanglement that produces the semblance and verisimilitude of live interaction, end quote. Professor Kim talks a lot about how K-pop is a multimedia performance, which it totally is, and tech can help recreate those feelings of intimacy. But what even is live? In K-pop, video and recorded performances can't be separated from live and in-person performances. Professor Kim talks in the book about the efforts K-pop companies make towards live performance and perfecting the way that idols come across on screen. She interviewed former trainees for big companies who mentioned that singing and dancing is constantly monitored back by the performers who watch video recordings of their performances. Trainees are also evaluated this way, if you recall what former trainees I mentioned in my Shine by Jessica Jung episode. It's extremely important how idols look on screen, not just on a live stage, according to Professor Kim's research, and she notes the emphasis K-pop puts on digital performances. You can definitely see that if you note that there are often official music show fan cams, such as solo fan cams, music videos which are performance version, the 4K version, the dance practice version, and so on. They wouldn't make all those if K-pop fans didn't consume them all. In her research, Kim points to others who claim live performance can't be saved or documented properly, and others who argue that that's not necessarily true, especially with emerging tech. There's no purity of live performance. According to Professor Kim, K-pop relies heavily on participation through mobile phones, including the practice of being at a live concert and filming the whole thing from a phone. Who else is guilty of that? I mean, I do that. She says that such fans, quote, thereby bring media intervention into the unfolding live event, making it difficult to categorically separate live from mediatized, end quote. So mediatized is a term she uses a lot in the book. She defines that term as, quote, often interchangeable with digital, end quote, and, quote, pertains to the media platform used for audiovisual presentation, end quote. In terms of authenticity of live performances or the purity of live performances, she writes, quote, live performances are seen as more authentic because they cannot be redone or edited and hence accentuate the risk-taking nature of liveness, end quote. Professor Kim has a section about television music shows. Popular music television shows have existed in Korea since the 1960s. Professor Kim goes into the very interesting history of the evolution of these Korean music shows. And these are the shows we know today as Inkigayo, Music Core, Music Bank, etc. And it's very important for singers to be on TV. We saw in one of our other episodes that sometimes idols will fight over who gets to be on TV, who wears the prettiest outfit, who gets the camera time, who gets the solo. Professor Kim quotes the former director of SM Entertainment's A&R department as saying, It is even customary for singers' managers to know the birthdays of TV producers' family members and send presents incurring their favor to get a spot on music programs for their singers. Professor Kim talks about how producers make the decisions on who gets how much airtime on TV. She didn't mention it in her book since this all came out afterwards, but there was a recent scandal with the popular competition show Produce 101, where producers were sentenced to prison for manipulating votes. The TV shows like Inkigayo and such have a really grueling schedule for the idols, who basically work an extremely long day with hair and makeup, rehearsal, pre-recording, and live performance for what amounts to only a few minutes of airtime. Professor Kim gives her recounting of attending a live music taping. I myself also attended the live taping of SBS's The Show back in 2019 when I visited Seoul. Again, Professor Kim's vivid descriptions of her experience are actually kind of thrilling to read since she paints such a clear picture. It makes you feel like you're there too. Now, these shows are a mix of pre-recorded and live performances, so it's a very complex and tight schedule. Professor Kim writes, quote, this pattern of alternating live performances with pre-recorded ones are repeated throughout the ensuing 60 minutes, with an additional pattern of having only established popular groups, Sister Infinite, Block B, Girls Day, B1A4 in her case, perform their songs in front of a live camera, end quote. Based on this somewhat split performance, Professor Kim again questions what is to be considered as live in this situation. I don't think it's any secret and the K-pop live book confirms that much of these types of television performances are lip syncing to a backing track. This track is called an MR, meaning music recorded track. The amount of reliance on this type of performance for television music shows is so much that it's almost as if they were lip syncing to an AR or all recorded track. Professor Kim describes that the producer of Music Corps once complained about lip-syncing idols, trying to ban lip-syncing altogether from his show. Some idols spoke out against this claim. Professor Kim said that Ryuk, of the group Super Junior, was one of the ones who spoke up. According to an article in Sumpy, Ryok tweeted, quote, To singers, the sound system is just as important as fancy stage production and lighting. Idle singers who are performance focused and just open their mouths may be a problem, but to flat out insist on live performances without room for improvement seems like tyranny, end quote. Pretty strong words from Ryuk. Professor Kim elaborates that Ryuk was pointing out that due to the, quote, elaborate choreography that is integral to K-pop music and because of performers insane schedule, which demands their presence of seven different shows throughout the whole week, it seems almost inevitable that singers will resort to lip syncing and that very little will change unless circumstances for performers improve, end quote. I also saw the same split between pre-recorded and live performance when I was in the audience for the show, so I don't think that the environment for fully live performance is there yet for these types of shows. So tech plays a huge part in the way we connect with idols now, as I was previously saying. Software platforms that we all share means that there is, quote, near live interaction between K-pop's producers and consumers, end quote. Professor Kim writes, quote, the highly reliable connection enables a semblance of live, real time communication that is powerful enough to transcend traditional language barriers, end quote. That brings us to the show After School Club. After School Club is produced by Arirang TV, which is an English language channel in Korea. Therefore, the hosts speak in English as well as in Korean. Current hosts of the show include Jamie Park, Jae-yoon, and Alan. At the time that the book was written, however, the host was Korean-American solo K-pop star Eric Nam. The format of After School Club, or ASC, is that fans from all over the world get to interact live with the idols guesting on the show via Google Hangouts. Looking back on this now, it definitely seems like a precursor to the now familiar online concerts where a wall of screens like a giant Zoom call is on behind the idols and the idols try to interact with them. By the way, this show is still on. So even though it feels like a precursor to pandemic era consumption of K-pop, it's, it's also concurrently going on with the pandemic. The hosts also check in on fans using their Twitter hashtags, so people at home not on the Google Hangout also get to feel like they are participating. The tweets are shown projected onto a wall during the show. A notable feature of using this type of tech is the unpredictable nature of live calls, where sound and visual glitches may occur during the broadcast and everyone just has to roll with it. Live translations of idols speaking in Korean are typed out in English at the bottom of the screen, and you can see the typing, including the backspacing to delete and correct any typographical mistakes. It gives an even stronger sense that you are watching something live and also kind of intimate. Professor Kim focuses on appearances by two groups that had several foreign members at the time, GOT7 and XOM, as groups who could communicate to a global audience even better than other K-pop groups, because members could converse fluently in English or Chinese due to their own personal ethnic backgrounds and upbringing. How live even this show is, is investigated by Professor Kim, who finds out that the Google Hangouts audience have a rehearsal and that some guests are aware that they will be chosen to speak to an idol. They are even given instructions about topics that they shouldn't be asking the idol, such as what is your ideal type to date. But then again, this is still TV after all, so you don't want to leave everything to chance, right? You have to have some TV magic to make things happen. Professor Kim explains, quote, In addition to fostering intimacy between Korean stars and foreign fans who are indispensable for the K-pop industry's survival, the program is actively reaping the benefits of live production by taking advantage of real-time social media promotion, end quote. Again, all of this seems super familiar now with online concerts being the norm and participating with everything using hashtags, but at the time that this book was written, this concept was a little bit more novel. With regards to social media and internet usage by fans in ways that can impact idols' careers, Professor Kim refers to the concept of media tribalism. Media tribalism is a term created by Japanese scholar Yueno Toshiya, sorry if I mispronounced that, and the mobilization of K-pop fans for some type of activism using social media. Professor Kim says, quote, K-pop fans, especially Korean fans, are also known for their deep involvement in making and breaking K-pop stars' careers, end quotes. And with regards to media tribalism, she says, quote, it points to the possessive behavioral traits that K-pop communities display in their desire to enjoy exclusive ownership of K-pop related knowledge and access to K-pop acts, end quote. She goes on to call this the antithesis to hung. In more recent times, we've heard of things like BTS fans co opting social media hashtags to bring attention to particular social justice matters. But way before this, fans have been using the internet to mobilize both for and against idols. So, of course, sometimes this tribalism is just used for the purpose to get their fans to chart or to get number one on the music shows. But fans will also come together at concerts to plan fan projects, helped by items such as light sticks to create oceans of color. Professor Kim specifically mentions the Yellow Ocean for Big Bang, the Red Ocean for TVXQ, and the Blue Ocean for Super Junior concerts. Fans may also collaborate on a banner with a special message to show their idols at a concert to show their love and support of them. Other fan projects include monetary donations in the name of idols to charitable organizations or celebrating a comeback or concert with in-kind donations of goods such as coal fuel and rice. Ever heard of fan rice or rice wreaths? Rice wreaths. (laughs) It's hard to say. It's when sacks of rice get piled up in front of, say, a venue, along with a wreath from fans to their idols. These sacks of rice, or sometimes coal, are donated to those in need of such items in the name of their idols. One major issue that occurred as a result of fan interaction and fan involvement was the JYJ law. The JYJ Law was created to protect their idols with the help of fans. So if you don't know, the group TVXQ, which currently consists of two members, originally consisted of five members. But in 2009, due to finding their 13-year-long contract with their company, SM Entertainment, unfair, three of the members sued SM and ultimately ended up leaving the group. Those three members of TVXQ formed a new group called JYJ. A journal article states, quote, as soon as the JYJ members filed the lawsuit, many JYJ fandoms, both inside and outside Korea, formed a group called People Who Are Against SM's Unlawful Contract, end quote. The article goes on to mention that the fans circulated this petition and got it sent to the government. This is where that whole slave contract thing, and so sorry for using that term, but that is the way it's known, unfortunately. That's how that contract situation came into the public consciousness. The court ruled in favor of JYJ, and this was considered a victory not just for JYJ, but for their fandom who had mobilized on their behalf. Later, the Phantom came to the collective belief that SM Entertainment was essentially retaliating against JYJ and sabotaging their career by blacklisting them from appearing on TV and from having any career both in Korea and in Japan, which is where TVXQ was and still is incredibly popular. So then, more petitions were circulated online to save JYJ. JYJ had a number of so called auntie fans. Now you remember maybe in the Factory Girls episode of this podcast where we talked about uncle fans and their weird policing of girl groups, but these auntie fans for JYJ were people who were over the age of 30 who had the financial ability compared to younger K-pop fans to support the group financially. So they did things like hire buses to run around Seoul promoting JYJ and setting up ads in the subway stations about JYJ in order to keep them in the public consciousness and not let them die out. In 2015, the JYJ law was passed, which prohibited the blacklisting of groups or individuals from appearing on television. The BTS military exemption law is another more recent example we have seen of fans trying to gain some control over their idols' future, though it remains to be seen whether BTS actually will or will not serve, as of this recording in April 2022. Along with the positive things that fans can do for their idols, fans are also capable of negative, including some truly vile things as well. We talked about the different color oceans of light sticks, like the red, blue, and yellow oceans. However, the flip side of this is if a bunch of anti-fans get together and decide to turn off all of their light sticks, thereby creating a black ocean. They don't cheer. They don't wave their light sticks. They just greet the idols they hate in what I can only imagine is eerie, stony silence. Professor Kim mentions an incident where a black ocean occurred, which happened to Girls' Generation back in the 2008 Dream concert. Some of you may be familiar with the term saucing fans who are stalker fans or super obsessive fans of idols. I actually kind of object to the fact that we refer to them as fans at all because it's a whole nother level of stuff going on. Basically, sausangs will go to great lengths to get near their idols, using all kinds of intrusive means to get close to them. Anything from boarding a flight that they are on, to installing microphones in their rooms, to showing up at their hotel rooms and residences. There have even been instances where tracking devices were attached to the vehicles of idols. Sasaengs in Korea can hire taxis all day to just chase around idols from schedule to schedule, though I'm not sure if this practice is still common. If you watch the drama, Her Private Life, you can see some of this in action. And let me just unequivocally say that if you think your idol or anyone would find this type of intrusion cute or endearing, you are wrong. You may know your idol, but they do not know you. They don't know your intentions or who you are or why you're near them. And the idols often report being frightened in these moments. Breaking into tour buses or hotel rooms or lurking in public restrooms or incessantly calling them on their phone is not the way to get close to your idol. There are two specific events of sausing activity that Professor Kim briefly touches on in the book. She writes, quote, even more devious fans will go so far as to send toxic drinks to their stars or send love letters written in menstrual blood just to be remembered, end quote. She doesn't say which idols those two incidents affected, but I will tell you. Someone wrote a love letter purportedly written in menstrual blood to Taekyon, a member of the group 2PM, and posted a picture of that letter on the internet. This led to additional blood-related copycat letters to idols. Very, very not cute. Do not do this. Okay, do not do that. An even more sinister event occurred when an anti-fan, which is what it sounds like, it's someone who spends their time despising a certain group or celebrity, gave TVXQ member Yunho an orange juice beverage, which she had laced with super glue. He had to be hospitalized as a result of this and suffered from anxiety for a long time, as would probably anyone in his situation. Yunho even continued to suffer from anxiety due to this event many years after it occurred, as recently as 2019. On the first season of the YouTube show Analog Trip, TVXQ went to Indonesia with members of Super Junior. Yunho experienced a moment of panic, and he attributed this moment to the incident with a poisoned orange juice. I just want to remind you that idols are regular human people. Like, yes, maybe they're millionaires or they're super famous and they get a lot of perks, but they shouldn't be terrorized like this. And they shouldn't have their lives threatened like this. I personally cannot understand or relate to on any level an anti-fan. Like, why would you spend time on things you and people you don't like? Like, I have no idea. Like who I don't like in K-pop. I just don't know their names. I don't know their lives. I'm not going to go out of my way to hand them a poisonous drink ever. We will be discussing more about anti fan behavior in the next season of this podcast. So moving on from that subject, let's talk more about tech for concert performances. Professor Kim talks about how, as wide-scale tours and K-pop were starting to become the norm at the time that this book was written, companies were starting to turn to technology—neocultural technology, one might say now—to help keep the global momentum of K-pop's popularity going. She describes companies using holograms of their idols. Including YG and SM Entertainment. SM was doing showings of hologram musicals starring idols from their company. She quotes English singer Emmy the Great as saying that holograms can do the work for singers in the future. Holograms were already being used abroad, according to Professor Kim. Quote, To anyone was one of the first artists to lead the trend as their holographic debut took place at London Old Billingsgate during Korean Brand and Entertainment Expo 2013, end quote. We've talked before on this podcast about the group Aespa and their avatars and the metaverse and all that, so I won't say it again, but it's interesting that this was in a way nothing new. By the way, if you liked my episode on Pop City in Korea and the selling of Place, Professor Kim describes her visit to SM Town in Coex, which by the way is no longer there, and I just really love the way she described these experiences, even if she seemed a little bit baffled by fan behavior. Finally, towards the end of the book, Professor Kim recounts her experiences attending KCON, a K-pop convention. Quote, a music concert, a merchandise convention, Korean culture workshops, and fan festival all at once, KCON provides something for everyone, end quote. So KCON are multi-day events with chances to meet your idols, panels where people give talks and workshops, dance parties, booths selling goods, including Korean food and beauty products, and concerts and dance parties in the evenings. Korean companies such as CJENM and Mnet helped to put the event on, and KCON has taken place in multiple cities and various countries. Professor Kim discusses KCON in incredible detail, and she herself was a panelist at at least two KCONs. She talks about how KCON demonstrates a commodification of fans' love and of their affected labor, as they use social media to hype up KCON and also use KCON to hype up their own selves, such as their own blog or fan club or YouTube channel or whatever it is that they do. Even Professor Kim notes that she wanted to appear at KCON in order to promote herself as a K-pop expert and also get the opportunity to research this very book. She also talks about fans being able to pay to get closer to their idols, hence the commodification of their love, since KCON offers things like red carpet events with the idols and artist engagement sessions. But it all comes back to the live performance and Professor Kim's wonderful descriptions of these experiences. Describing a KCON performance from Super Junior at KCON LA 2015, Professor Kim said, quote, hands reached out in the air as if hoping to touch the aura of presence in the same time and space with the gleaming stars. At least in that moment, they were breathing the same air with their adoring fans. A rare instance of intimacy made tangible in the magical pulse of a live concert, end quote. I just really loved how she described live concerts and touching the aura and you know, breathing the same air and having this instance of intimacy. And I find that to be a very apt description, at least for me, for live concerts. Like everything else, KCON was sidelined during the pandemic and moved to an online format, but it will be making steps to come back this year. In conclusion, this was another academic book about Hallyu, there are so many, which had some very interesting information and some very well-written parts. And just my own thoughts here, I personally don't think it matters much whether live is really live live or manufactured live or virtually live. I just think it's important to engage in K-pop in a positive manner with other fans and groups and not spend your time and energy in a negative way or in a way that will be dangerous to you or to others. If you are able to go to a concert this year or during the pandemic, I just want to remind you that there have been instances where the tours have had to be cut short due to the idols falling ill with COVID. And so I hope you will please wear your mask to protect yourself and protect those around you. And I hope you feel a lot of hung while you're out there. As a reminder, you can reach me on social media, on Instagram at kpopbookshelfpod, as in podcast, and on Twitter at kpopbookshelf. You can also email me at kpopbookshelfpod at gmail.com. Be sure to check out my blog to see the sources I used for researching this episode. The links in my bio and show notes will take you there. Special thanks to Ao for designing my blog. As always, if you enjoy today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks, bye.